two sides or two primary attributes of the one God. Genesis 1 emphasizes God's transcendence over creation. God is all-powerful, and there is nothing um, that can contest God's power or authority. And in Genesis chapter 2, God feels much more personal and, and close. For example, uh, his, the, God's personal name is included when you get into Genesis chapter 2. It's the Lord God, Yahweh God. But it also talks about how God not just spoke things into existence, but how God formed man from the dust of the ground, just like a potter forms from, from clay. That, that word for formed is, is just like what a potter would do, is these fashions and molds and carves something. So God, in this sense, is very hands-on. He's very close. He's very near. And he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of humans. God is both transcendent and imminent. God is both above all things and with us here in the midst of creation. God is both great and good. So as we continue in our study, let us now pray. Lord of life, you have created us in your image and breathed in us the breath of life. God, in a world that struggles to define meaning and purpose for life, help us to discover the value of the life you give to us. For it is only in a right knowledge of you, Lord, that we can understand better our own purpose and our own place in existence. And so we pray, show us your glory. Feeble and mortal as we are, we need your spirit to fill us, to enlighten us, and to empower us to live lives worthy of the calling to which you have created us and called us. Amen. All right, so the question of all questions. It's a big statement. Question of all questions. Why are we here? And the answer to that is not because my wife made me get up and come to church this morning. It's why I'm talking about why are we here? Why do we exist? I almost feel like I need to take a break right now and let y'all go get some coffee if you need coffee and then come back in. Because that's like, that's a pretty big question for, uh, what time is it now? 10:51 in the morning. But why do we exist? This is probably the the biggest and most elemental question that we as living beings can ask. Why does anything exist? Why does creation exist? Why do we exist? But then we can take that a, a step further, can't we? And we can make it personal. We can ask ourselves or maybe we can ask God, why do I exist? Why do you exist why are you here what's the point of your life well that question why are we here um, can really have, have two meanings in a way and both of them are significant we can ask why do I exist ontologically meaning why am I a being at all from what source do I originate like why am I here at all in existence but the second way that that question can, can uh, find significance is, why do I exist in a functional sense? Like, what is my purpose? What am I here to do? Not just why am I here, but what am I here to do? Why do we exist? This, for millennia, has been the great existential question of humanity. Humans have pondered this and provided theories and philosophies centered around that question. 
So, here we are, in the 21st century, still debating that question. Whether one is a theist, or an agnostic, or an atheist, I think it's fairly safe to say that, that all would say there's something unique and special about this unique creature called human. There's something that sets us apart from other things in the created order, but we disagree on exactly kind of how we go about that in our thought processes. Um, so most of the books in my personal library are Christian in nature. Um, that probably doesn't surprise you. You're probably like, okay, good, the pastor has Christian books. <laughs> but there's a few that I have that are not. There, a few of them are actually written by hardline atheists. And I have them because I think it's important that we as Christians be engaged in dialogue with those who profess that there is no God. We need to have something relevant to say and hear that perspective. And I don't want to get too much into the the weeds on this because this is a whole, there's lots of rabbit holes where this could go to. But I thought an interesting place to begin would be to briefly look at an atheist's perspective. And I bought this book. Uh, The title of it caught my eye, The Meaning of Human Existence by Edward Wilson. And Edward Wilson is widely recognized as one of the world's preeminent biologists and naturalists. Uh, He's a professor emeritus at Harvard University and the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes. He also lives in Massachusetts, uh, has his credit card number on here, has birth... No. Um, just, just a little biography on the back. But the meaning of human existence. It was a New York Times bestseller, it tells me. It was a National Book Award finalist. It's got a little sticker on the front. And Vice President Al Gore has a quote on the front. It says, an invaluable analysis of who we are and the choices we now confront. It is a must read for all. This is what we're faced with in the world in which we live. And so I wanted to offer a little bit of what uh, Mr. Wilson um, writes here as he ponders the meaning of human existence. And again, he's a, he's a stout atheist. There's, there's no, <laughs> he's, he's pretty uh, blatant about that. But for the question of why are we here ontologically, you know, why do we exist as beings, he writes this, humanity arose as an accident of evolution, a product of random mutation and natural selection. Our species was just one endpoint out of many twists and turns in a single lineage of old world primates, of which there are today several hundred other native species, each a product of its own twists and turns. And then a page later he adds this, this rare combination of circumstances during the evolutionary run-up combined with luck rolled the dice in favor of early humans. The sort of thinking's not new to us. We, we've heard the atheist view of the universe and that somehow, you know, it generated itself out of nothing or maybe it's always been eternal in some way. And then it exploded and by mere cause and effect and chance and luck, as he says, 
somehow led to this planet, this third rock from the sun, and it led to life. And that life evolved into living, breathing, self-aware, creative, moral beings that humans are today. The takeaway for why do we exist from an atheist perspective is there's no real reason why we exist other than dumb luck and chance. But what does Wilson say about why we are here then? What is the meaning of human existence? What is our purpose for existence? Well, he writes this. We were created not by a supernatural intelligence, but by chance and necessity as one species out of millions of species in Earth's biosphere. Hope and wish for otherwise as we will, there is no evidence of an external grace shining down upon us, no demonstrable destiny or purpose assigned to us, no second life vouchsafed us for the end of the present one. We are, it seems, completely alone. And that, he adds this, in my opinion, is a very good thing. It means we are completely free. He tries to place a positive spin on it, and I disagree with him in a, in a number of ways, but I find his, his thought process in that problematic. For one, I mean, we aren't completely free. We are interdependent creatures. We are dependent on other things. But beyond that, if humans were completely free, that's a very dangerous thing. <laughs> I mean, humans in a lot of ways are not to be trusted. What's, what's the phrase? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, I, I don't know if I would completely put my hands in a human that had complete power, complete freedom, no consequences, no, you know, where morality was completely and utterly up to their discernment. That's a dangerous thing. So I don't know what kind of fantasy utopia he's envisioning here, but I just, I know that we humans are a little too selfish for that to end up too well, at least for, for most people probably. But he continues, and, and on the following page, he says this. So, what is the meaning of human existence? He rephrases the question specifically. And so this is going to be his answer. This is the, the premise, I guess, of his book. What is the meaning of human existence? I've suggested that it is the epic of the species, begun in biological evolution and prehistory, passed into recorded history, and urgently now, day by day, faster and faster into the indefinite future. It is also what we will choose to become. So basically, that's kind of a lot of words. Basically what Wilson is saying is we are the result of chance and luck. As we've already mentioned, we have no real purpose or destiny in life. And for him, the meaning, where he you know, describes as meaning, the meaning of human existence is essentially two things. It's the epic of the species, meaning that it's, it's kind of the, the story, I guess. It's the accidental events of the cosmos, that history, that chance that somehow humans were produced that ended us up here at this time and place. Basically saying all that cause and effect, that's the meaning. Which kind of doesn't really make sense. That's not really describing meaning, that's describing how, but that's not really describing meaning. But then he goes on and he's 
mentions a second meaning for him of human existence, and that is, it is also what we will choose to become, what we arbitrarily choose for the future to be. But again, who's choosing? Who's guiding? Who's why? If we're not created for any certain purpose or real meaning, then why does what we choose in, at any day, in any time, really matter? I think his argument fails on a, on a number of points, but this, again, is the world in which we live. This is the, the New York Times bestseller list in which we live. Atheism points us really in, in two main, or not points us, but points uh, itself into two main directions. It's either nihilism, which is that nothing matters and everything is meaningless, or humanism, which is basically that humans are all that matter. And from a humanist perspective, it's humans the ones that are assigning meaning, so it kind of falls in on itself and trying to conjure up meaning and significance for the importance of humans really just ends up back at nihilism because if we weren't created for a greater purpose, if we weren't created for a greater meaning for our lives, then what does life ultimately matter? In that line of thinking, it doesn't matter. Humans don't matter. Our lives don't matter in that thinking. And that for us is, it's misguided. It's arrogant, it's naive, it's meaningless, and frankly, just depressing. But as we think biblically and theologically, why are we here? We'll turn our attention back to Genesis and what Genesis communicates to us about our meaning and purpose and why we are here. And the first big, or the first aspect of that big question that we have focused on already is in chapter 1. Why do we exist Ontologically, why do, where do we originate from? Well, we exist because in the beginning God created. God is sovereign. God is free. And God chose to bring the universe and humanity and you into existence. And in Genesis 1, we looked at verses 26 and 27 where it went on to say that God created uh, humankind in his own image and likeness. And in verse 28, God gives further Um, dignity to humans and that God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth the the humanist believes that human dignity is intrinsic it's something that is within our creatureliness that our dignity and our importance are inherent within ourselves. It's all anthropocentric. It's all human-centered. It's all about us. That's the humanist perspective, which is a lot of what um, we see in our world today. But the theist understands, and especially the Christian understands, is that the source of our existence and the source of our dignity as humans as well as the meaning for our life, is not intrinsic, it's extrinsic. It's from something outside of us. That is to say that life and dignity and meaning and purpose are given to us by something or someone outside of ourselves, namely 
those things are bestowed on us by God, the creator of all things. God gives us life. God gives us breath. God gives us meaning and purpose. And so now our question becomes, well, what is our purpose? Okay, so God created, and we're here. What is our purpose? Why are we here in that way? Well, remember how I talked about Genesis 1 as being this account of creation, that creation is, is God's cosmic temple. Well, our purpose as humans is to serve in that temple. In short, we are called to be a holy priesthood to all of creation. When we look at Genesis chapter 2, um, let's start in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So verse 7, again, emphasizes that our life and the dignity of human life is given to us extrinsically by God. God gives us that. But now into, going into verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The idea of the, the, I wanted to pause here because the idea of a garden, I think sometimes when we think of garden, we think of like our backyard garden, you know, where we grow our basil and our zucchini and things like that. But that word, that Hebrew word for garden uh, meant something a little more than just a backyard garden. It, it, it encompasses more of a fenced-in, protected area. It's an enclosure And in it, you know, obviously, yes, trees are planted and plants are are there, but it serves more as a sanctuary space. It's a a place of refuge. And I think that's easy for us to imagine when we think about the Garden of Eden. It's like this, you know, this utopia where everything's pure and perfect. Well, when it describes the Garden of Eden, it is. It's describing this sanctuary space, this place of protection and, and, and a boundary And I want to skip down now to uh, verse 15. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on this verse. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. That sounds very much like uh, gardening work, right? To till it and keep it. We're familiar with that. But I want to focus on that phrase a little bit. Because the, the word that the NRSV here translates as till it. It's actually a a fairly common word in the Hebrew language. It's the word for work, um, which is how the NIV, if you have the NIV, that's how it translates it. uh, That God put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. But that's also the same word as the word serve. It's also the same word as the word worship. When we when, when priests would serve in the temple, they were working in the temple. That's, it's the same word. And this, it has this connection. It, it's our outward expression of, of living out our lives for the purpose of God. And so while it makes sense in our minds that since it's a garden, it needs to be tilled, you know, but this is God's garden. And so the man is put there not just to, to till ground, but to serve God. To maintain this this place of refuge, this sanctuary space. He's put there to worship God through his work, through his purpose. 
And similarly, the, the second word in that phrase, keep it, it's a, it's a word um, that can also be translated as to watch over it, to care for it, to guard it. This space, this garden of Eden, man is put there not just to kind of perform these tasks, but to care for it, to care about it, to watch over it, to guard it, to maintain it. There's a scholar and author, um, I've quoted from him before, but his name's John Walton, and he says that the verbs translated as till it and keep it are terms most frequently encountered in human service to God rather than descriptions of agricultural tasks. The tasks given to Adam are of a priestly nature, caring for sacred space. In ancient thinking, caring for sacred space was a way of upholding creation. By preserving order, non-order was held at bay. If the priestly vocabulary in Genesis 2.15 indicates the same kind of thinking, the point of caring for sacred space should be seen as much more than landscaping or even priestly duties. Maintaining order made one a participant with God in the ongoing task of sustaining the equilibrium God has established in the cosmos. God has called us to be partners with him in creation. If this is God's cosmic temple, we are put here to guard it, to protect it, to serve and worship God, to serve one another, to extend God's love toward one another. And this account of Adam and Eve in the garden, it it describes in a way how they're called to be priests because God entrusts them to that service, to that care of that garden space, that sacred space. And as we will get to, you know, maybe next week, we know that they didn't hold that space very long. They, They failed to serve God faithfully in what we describe as the fall. But after that, God created a nation, the nation of Israel, to be his representatives then in the world, to be a blessing unto the nations. And before issuing the Ten Commandments, God said to them, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was God's intention for the nation of Israel to be this kingdom of priests, to be this holy nation, to be this light unto the world, to express, to show God's love to the world. But again, as we go through the Old Testament, that nation would fail to live up to that calling. So eventually God sent his son Jesus into the world. Our prophet, priest, and king, and and the author of Hebrews in the New Testament describes Jesus as the great high priest. And this is a a little wordy, but it's an important part of the book of Hebrews. It's in chapter 7. It says, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, that is the earthly high priest, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. I love when the Bible gives us a line like that because that means like really tune in. The main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. God's redemptive purposes have been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus restores to us the relationship that was broken and fractured as a result of the fall. As a result of those first priests failing to live up to their calling, as a result of the nation of Israel failing to live up to its calling, Christ fulfilled God's calling and is for us our great high priest. By faith in Christ, we are made righteous. We are restored into that relationship with God. We become the body of Christ we, we, we are called to love and to serve one another as Christ loved and served others. And so this brings us back to our own meaning and purpose. Why are we here? Well, just as was originally designed, just as Adam and Eve were to represent God by serving God in creation, we are called to be the image of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ, the body of Christ in which we are called to represent and serve God and others in this world. Put concisely, we are called to be priests. That doesn't mean you have to wear you know, the black shirt with the little white square around your neck, but you are called to be a priest. 1 Peter 2 says, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. That that is, let the church be the new temple. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the role for which we have been created and for which we are called to. This is our meaning and purpose to serve as that royal priesthood. And so who is a priest? Well, Peter tells us, you And he's not writing to any like singular you. He's not writing to a people. That's a plural you. That's a y'all in in Texas. Y'all are a royal priesthood. This isn't just for, you know, a certain sect of clergy or, you know, especially religious people. This is for all Christians, all who put their trust in Christ. One of the great maxims that came out of the Reformation in the 16th century was the the idea of the priesthood of all believers. It is not just that special people serve as priests, but that through Christ we are all called to be priests. And Martin Luther, he's even quoted as writing, all Christians are priests and all priests are Christians. Worthy of anathema is any assertion 
that a priest is anything else than a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a priest in this world. So what's the role of a priest? I I like this uh, quote from the Bible Project group. It says, a priest is someone who presides over the overlapping boundary of heaven and earth. Their primary function is to represent God to the people and the people to God. Priests act as mediators between heaven and earth, between the divine and the human, and they are embodied representatives of the divine. That's our role. That's a high calling to be that connection between God and man, to to bring people toward God, to restore to those that relationship by putting their trust in Christ. So how do we serve as priests? Well, first, we, we have to look inward first. We serve as priests when we mirror and reflect God in our lives. When God's character, or when our character mimics God's character, when we conform to the image and likeness of God, when we conform to the image of Christ, that is serving as a priest. Another way is communicating God's truth, love, communicating the gospel toward others. That's how we serve as priests in this world. When we pray for others, when we offer intercession for other people, when we offer forgiveness and reconciliation toward other people, that is how we can serve as priests in this world. When we serve God and we serve others with acts of charity and mercy, you know, whether it's our, our children's ministry offering blankets to kids in need, or whether it's you know, signing up for the Katie Christian ministry uh, food fair yesterday, whatever it is, or even just mowing the grass here at the church, put, offering ourselves in service toward God and toward what God is doing. That is how we serve as priests. And also when we are good stewards of God's gifts and of God's creation, of God's cosmic temple, that is when we serve as priests. And I think that's things that we can think about individually in our lives. But um, Rick mentioned this last week, and I thought it would be a a good kind of way to end it this week. We as a church, we, y'all, we are called to be a royal priesthood. And so how do we do that? I think... uh, The great ends of the church say it well. We do that by the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. We do that in the shelter, nurture, and spiritual fellowship of the children of God. We do that in the maintenance of divine worship. We do that in the preservation of the truth, in the promotion of social righteousness, and the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. That is how we serve as priests. And it doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, what level of schooling you have, what your job is, what your position or status is. You are called to be a priest to the world around you. In every moment, in every place, in every situation, we have the opportunity to glorify and honor and serve God as his representatives, his priest in creation. That's, that's what worship is about. So what is the meaning of human existence? Well, it's this. Your life matters because you have been created by God 
for a reason and for a purpose. There is meaning for your existence. And it's found in God. It's found in that relationship with God. And in your answering God's call to be his priests in the world. So I'm going to end with uh, Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us to be a kingdom. Priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you have called.